kids podcast. <laughs> you can go slow. A kids podcast about. This is Sarah Jones Breaks It Down. I'm Sarah, and I'm here to help us better understand what's happening in the world. Why? Because as a journalist, that's my job. And this world isn't just filled with adults. Nope. It's our world. So every week, we'll talk about the stories that you may overhear some adults talking about, and we'll break it down. Break it down. down. Break it down. Let's get into it. Peace and justice. They're powerful words. And these two words, they can mean different things to different people. I've interviewed a lot of kids who have survived war. And something that always strikes me is peace is the one thing they want the most. Not justice, not revenge, even if they've seen their own parents murdered before their very eyes. I've always wondered, at what point does that child or have they witnessed enough violence that they no longer want peace, but they now want revenge or justice? What makes us want revenge over peace and justice? Because there is a turning point, and I still don't know what it is after all the kids I've talked to. And what are the keys to peace and justice lasting? Because I look at war as something that doesn't necessarily have a stark beginning and end. Sometimes previous wars impact a generation so deeply that how they feel after the war causes another war when that generation grows up. But the future is not written in stone. And you, as a child, you have more power and control over peace than many adults give you credit for. You guys determine what the future looks like. So peace and justice, let's break it down, starting with the legal side of things. And who better to help us do that than international lawyer Benjamin Doerr? So Benjamin, in the last episode, you mentioned that although rule breakers exist, there are international laws when it comes to war. Wars are quite strictly regulated as to what different parties are allowed to do, what weapons they can use, um, how they should behave, what kind of methods and means of warfare are allowed. And I think that's maybe the biggest misconception that everything is allowed uh, in war, but that's actually not the case. And these rules and regulations are laid out in treaties and conventions. So there are a few uh, fundamental rules. One is, for example, that a distinction must be made between civilians and soldiers. So people who are not fighting or who are not participating in, in the fighting, they can never be targeted. Another rule is against the use of chemical weapons. You may have also seen the hashtag, not a target. That applies to when buildings that are not supposed to be attacked have been targeted in war. In principle, for example, hospitals or schools or churches cannot be attacked. And because hospitals, schools and places of worship are supposed to be safe places for civilians, some armed groups or soldiers illegally use them as places to hide, putting civilians who are not directly involved in the conflict at risk and using them as human shields. There it becomes already (laughs) complicated because there are very few cases when it is still possible um, to target them. For example, if soldiers hide in school, that building could be a target because then it becomes a, a military objective. That would mean that it could be targeted. But regardless, the rules are war state civilians are not to be targeted. But as you probably learned in our episode so far, 
Very little in this world fits into a box. There's a lot of gray. Yeah, exactly. I, I think even though the laws are sometimes violated, it doesn't mean that they're not important. So you can compare it to, to laws in, in, in our countries where there also happens cases of murder or theft or robbery. These kind of things happen in, uh, around the world and the same applies to the laws of war. So what happens when someone breaks the rule of war? The next step to prosecute those who violate the laws because only if there are consequences or when there are consequences, people are more likely to follow the laws. And that's why we have international courts. That's why we use sanctions um, to punish those who, um, who violate the laws. You know, when it comes to state level or national level, there's police. There are people that help enforce the laws. Is there anyone that helps enforce the international laws of war? No, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. So at the, at the state level, we have uh, police forces who can enforce the law. But the biggest difference with the international level is that we don't have an international police force, um, which means that the enforcement of the law at the international level is much more difficult. So the enforcement of, of international law really relies on the domestic police forces who works together with international courts, for example, um, but also among them, we have um, different organizations, um, for example, Interpol, which coordinates the different police forces across border, but there are no real international police forces that could intervene in, in all countries. So it's still very much up to the domestic forces to enforce the law. But there are ways to enforce international law. For example, sanctions, which can impact an individual's ability to travel or access their money, and also the court system. National courts can open investigations and then prosecute the individuals. And we have international courts that usually go behind the more high-level people like presidents or uh, military leaders. They work together with, yeah, with domestic police forces and investigators, try to prosecute the high-level individuals for very grave crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, genocide. The court that goes after the decision makers who allowed or ordered for war crimes to occur is called the International Criminal Court, or ICC, and it's based in The Hague in the Netherlands. So if the person is found guilty, he or she can be, be imprisoned for quite a long time, up to 30 years. In general, then there are some specific aspects that make it more difficult, for example, that there is no, what we just discussed, there's no police force to arrest people. So it still relies on the, the domestic police forces. So there is no international prison. But when a person is found guilty, he or she would be sent to uh, uh, the prison of uh, another country. But this kind of prosecution or trial does not happen overnight. The persons can be tried as long as they live. That doesn't expire. Also, the, the arrest warrants, for example, they don't expire. Very often, it takes a very long time until these persons face trial. That has to do with the difficulty to arrest them. Um, it has to do with political circumstances. Very often, 
there needs to be a, a change in government or the fall of a regime, for example, the suspects are arrested. But we've seen many cases where individuals have been arrested and tried sometimes 10, 20, 30 years after the crimes have been committed. We also see, for example, in, in, in Europe still cases that individuals who committed crimes in the Second World War um, are still put on trial today. And they're in sometimes in their 80s or 90s, very long time after the crimes um, have, been, have been committed. Justice or holding people accountable doesn't happen quickly. It takes time to gather witnesses and evidence, and often one has to wait for the person in power to fall out of power in order to go after them. Justice very often takes, takes a long time. The ICC is funded by its members, and not every country in the world is a member. There are a few countries that are not a member of the ICC. The US, for example, China, Russia, India. And that means that the court cannot investigate cases that are committed in these countries, that they also don't get money from these countries, and that the collaboration between the court and these countries is, is more difficult. Russia is not um, a member of the ICC. Some media outlets have suggested that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was illegal. Um, there has been reports of alleged war crimes in Ukraine. Since Russia is not a member of the ICC, does that mean that the people that are allegedly uh, perpetrators of these crimes will not be held responsible? Or what does what does that mean? No, it doesn't mean that these people cannot be held responsible. In fact, there are different attempts at the moment to hold them accountable. Uh, one is at the national level. For example, Ukraine has opened investigations. There are missions, investigations, missions by the, the, the United Nations um, that are collecting evidence um, of potential war crimes. Even if they're committed by Russians, they could still be held accountable because if the crimes were committed um, in a country that is either a member of the court or supports the court, then even foreigners can be held accountable. The difficulty will be, of course, to arrest people. We talked a little bit about um, Russia and Ukraine. There's also Syria. Human Rights Watch has documented war crimes there. The Afghan Taliban, we've heard um, of alleged war crimes happening there and also alleged war crimes in the Tigray region. How come nothing's happening there yet? Is it a matter of regime change? Yeah, I guess the the examples that you mentioned, Syria, Ethiopia, maybe the most disappointing cases where we clearly see that international law is, is violated, but that very little is happening. Um, and that has to do mainly with a lack of political will. Yeah, with, with power politics, really, because of these geopolitical aspects that also influence how the law is applied because some powerful states can can prevent it from from being applied or from uh, the ICC becoming involved. So holding someone accountable for war crimes isn't easy, but most things in life are pretty complex. But what is justice? To me, really, justice is fairness. Justice is the, the feeling of being fine with the past. 
So accepting what happened, being able to, yeah, in a way, close what, what happened. But there's also that element of, of the law, of course, that justice also means that the law is enforced or that people who have committed a crime are, are punished. Is justice always fair? No, I think justice is not always fair because even if someone is convicted, for example, it doesn't mean that the person who has suffered or the victim feels that that's a fair sentence. Benjamin told us that individuals who committed war crimes in World War II are being tried today, nearly 70 years after the war. So is it still justice even if someone is being held accountable decades later? Depending on the extent, I would probably say, see, I don't know, because that's a difficult one, because with there being that many years in between, like so much can change, so many people can change, because some people are just, they're following what they're told to do, and that might not even be who they are as a person. So if they're going to get disciplined, if you will, for something that they did 20, 30 years ago, because it was either someone else's life or their life, or you do this, or, you know, we kill you or whatever it may be, that's, that's a tough one. I don't think that justice expires or has an end date. I think the International Criminal Court has a great role to prosecute people committed genocides, crimes against humanity, or war crimes. It's been one of the main demands of Syrian people that those who committed crimes in Syria should be held accountable. And we have a great hope in the International Criminal Court that will bring justice to victims. Justice is to everybody who were responsible for what happened in Syria. Those people, they have to get a punishment for it. Justice would be when those who commit crimes are identified and held accountable. And it could be by a court of law. And sometimes if you can't actually get a hold of people, justice is more like an ideal. It's an ultimate goal to treat people fairly, to have respect for people. If you have differences, to solve them by discussions, by compromise, and not simply by killing people or repressing them because they're different, because they have a different language, a different background, a different skin color. That is injustice when people are treated unfairly like that. It takes an effort by everyone, though. It takes an effort by everyone to, to build a more just world. Is it possible to have peace without justice? You can have peace, meaning the absence of war, and have no justice. It's a very interesting uh, question when you put uh, peace and justice together. Because often people are saying, do we want peace or do we want justice? And it's going back to the war crime that is being committed. Because in the past, to have peace, they were saying to people who commit uh, war crime, stop to fight and we will forgive you about the war crime that you did. So they were focusing on peace and they were forgetting about justice. Then 
the population were saying, okay, this is not right. And when you do this, there are studies that show that peace without justice make peace not lasting because people don't forgive and don't forget. So for me, peace is when you reach a, a status that people forgive each other and that uh, people who commit uh, human rights abuse or war crime bring to justice. So for myself, you need to have justice before to have peace. But this takes longer. Jenny was part of two very different peacekeeping missions. The first was in Bosnia. So the peacekeeping mission was there after the conflict when they have a peace agreement between both parties. And both parties were willing to start the process to rebuild and to, uh, to live together. And then after that, I've been to Afghanistan in 2004, two years after. And then there, the parties didn't agree for us to be there. So the peacekeeping mission was there to try to negotiate a peace agreement. When you go in a country where they already have peace, you don't have to come with a lot of uh, weapons. But when you go to a country where people don't agree to have peace, you need to come with a weapon to make sure that you are able to uh, provide safety to the population because people are still fighting. So a lot of conflict now are like this. And just as war has evolved because of technology, so has peacekeeping. Now, peacekeeping mission need to consider also the cyber operation. And they need to consider the information. And peacekeeping is about far more than just stopping armed conflict. When I was going to work with an uh, orphanage in um, Bosnia. So, you know, conflict. People are fighting each other. And then they have to be able to pass over what they saw during the war and come back as one population for the country. So when I was there, I was working with the kids because the kids, they look at the parents and they do the same thing that their parents. And the parents, they are using signs that make them divide. So let's say when they were raising their hand at school to ask questions, if they were look like Serb, they were raising their hands with two, two fingers. And when, if they were Muslim, they were raising their hand with three fingers. The way the kids were raising their hands in school was making it easy for everyone to identify if they were Serbian or Bosnian. Jenny's task was to observe the classroom and to help find ways to bring Serbians and Bosnians together to move forward as one nation. We are just telling them, okay, how to raise the hand. So instead to do two finger or three finger, we're saying, okay, you raise your hand. So not to choose one or the other, but to make sure that this is a sign that in each other country, this is how they do it. We didn't say that it's wrong to do two finger or three finger because it's right. But because we want to have one team, we want everybody to use the same uh, sign. This is what uh, we did with them. She says it's pertinent to include children in peacekeeping. Kids are crucial for rebuilding a country because they are the society of tomorrow. She says trust is another critical element of maintaining peace. When people are fighting, they lose trust between each other. So the peacekeeping mission is that the trust agent between the parties to be able to rebuild, but also the access to resource. You can share power, but in sharing power, you need to have that every part of the population access to the resource in a similar way. 
That's another reason education and maintaining low levels of unemployment are so pertinent after war. Schooling often gets disrupted during war, so to prevent future wars, you have to work towards high employment among future generations. Yes, because if you don't have other means to earn money, the armed group will propose you means to earn money. They will give you a gun and they will give, give you food and they will make you fight for their belief. Not your belief, but you will fight with them because you will not have other skill. You will not have other means to be able to feed your family or to feed yourself. Long-term peace becomes impossible if a conflict leaves behind an immensely large gap in equality and access to resources. This part of the population who don't have access to resource, maybe they are fine right now, but in five or ten years, they will stop to be fine, and they are the one who will start again the war. And the other thing is also women they need to have a space in the society. Because uh, when the world is just considering what the men needs, you have 50% of the population who don't have what they need to be able to survive. And they have a lot of study about that. So now, peacekeeping mission, try to involve all parts of the population when they agree how they will rebuild the population. So now this is how they do the, the peacekeeping. They include all parts of the society because they discover that if they just take the, the people who fight, you don't have a solution that will last. So now you know more about peace, justice, and peacekeeping. But information is for everyone. And everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. So let's talk about something that's going on in the world that isn't getting as much attention, but should be. The term journalists use for that type of story is underreported. And news can be underreported for a lot of different reasons. Sri Lanka has been in the news, but you probably just saw people storming the presidential palace. And, well, it's important to always understand the background and underlying cause for events. Instability like that doesn't just happen overnight. Sri Lanka has been suffering from an economic crisis for a while. Basically, the country hasn't had enough fuel, which caused petrol and diesel prices to soar. Last month, the government even banned the sale of petrol and diesel for non-essential vehicles for two weeks. Also, countries usually borrow money from one another. That's kind of how the global economy works. But Sri Lanka now owes more than $51 billion to other countries, including $6.5 billion to China. So they've discussed doing loans. But loans mean interest, which can mean greater debt in the future. Some people blame the president for the economic mismanagement, or ex-president, I should say. Others say the pandemic meant less tourists, which is a major source of the economy in Sri Lanka. But there were also a series of issues before the pandemic, like the Easter bombings of 2019, and a nationwide policy to shift to organic or biological farming. And when people are struggling to get basic necessities, they usually protest. Economic hardship usually causes political instability. The shortage of fuel meant power cuts for people. It also meant shortage of food and medicines. So people took to the streets. They protested, took over the palace, and the president has since fled the country. So now there's a power vacuum, which means anybody could assert their power, which makes Sri Lanka a place to watch. Thank you for listening and for breaking it down with me today. 
If you have a question about war or Central Asia, or if there's something else going on in the world that you want us to break down, write to us or record a message and email us at listen at akidsco.com. Sarah Jones Breaks It Down is written and reported by me, Sarah Jones. You can learn more about me and my work at sarahjonesreports.com. Our show is edited and produced by Matthew Winner with help from Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Studios. Our executive producer is Jelani Memory. And this show is brought to you by a kid's podcast about. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. And check out other podcasts made for kids just like you by visiting kidsco.com. Thank you for hanging out with me and stay curious.